Hi, um, I'm Sarah Aldixon, and um, I've come, I work in student welfare over at Manchester University. Um, and I was just wondering, I was thinking poetry to me is not a choice. It's sometimes a need and a coping mechanism if I feel overwhelmed with things. Uh, it's a way of being in the world, and um, it was my first recourse after, earlier on this year, I kind of got overwhelmed and um, gave myself a makeover wrote a poem, and then I turned to counselling. <laughs> so I was wondering if there's a, um, you can think of any way uh, that medicine could possibly be prescribed. But, uh, sorry, imagination could be prescribed as a medicine. <laughs> what a great idea. <laughs> um, I, I think it's a good, I, I love the idea, and I, I like the idea of turning to a poem. I mean, not, as I was saying before, not necessarily to answer whatever the issue or difficulty is, but to sort of find a, find a form or a, a kind of container for it. Um, and one very interesting thing I found is um, when I'm going around or, you know, particularly in a taxi, people, they'll say, what do you do? I'm a writer. What do you write? Poems. 99% of people will say to me, I wrote a poem once. And then when you investigate further... They've written it at a time of kind of crisis or joy, a kind of key life moment for them. And it's as if, you know, I, I don't think poetry is widely read now, but certainly there's some kind of deep understanding that it's the form that we turn to at moments of high emotional, high importance in our lives. And I think some kind of recognition of that has, you know, generally in, in the institutions, it's already there in the people, might be helpful, as you say, yes. Okay, there's a good quote here from Caroline Duffy, which I pulled. To poet, so the role of poetry is to provide music to being human, but to call into question what needs to be questioned, rather than necessarily the answers. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, I'm, I'm Mark, I'm a GP over in Hereford about an hour away from here. Uh, I wanted to say something about metaphor and the collective imagination, but just a very tiny point just to answer the person in front of me. Uh, there was a, a, a scheme for, for, which allowed me to refer patients to a poetry workshop, uh, this is, uh, which was a part of the Ledbury Poetry Festival. It was an outreach program for them, uh, which has occurred in the last 12 months. And I referred eight people into a group, a writing group, when they met four times. And it was a transforming experience for so many of those people. And they were, and they were a whole spectrum of different uh, educational backgrounds. And, uh, and, and many of them thought, I shouldn't really be doing this because I don't write. and I'm not the sort of person. I don't even read poetry. And then just having that leap of faith and working with the facilitator to go and do that, that, that uh, was absolutely transforming for them. Yes. Yes. So, yeah, yeah just a, qu a quick answer to that one. My point, though, was it, was it was drawing a little bit on the George Lakoff work, which you uh, mentioned, Joe, uh, and also that sense of how a collective imaginary, the kind of collective imaginary leap that might be necessary to tackle climate change, for instance, is yeah. one of the greatest challenges ahead of us. Uh, Lakoff, I think, writes about how uh, metaphor is hardwired into the way we construct our reality as humans. That's kind of one of the the things he works with. And, and I wondered how that understanding that George Lakoff gives us might give us a clue, and I don't know the answer to this, this is why I'm asking the question, uh, might give us a clue as to how he might address 
the barriers to using our imagination to figure out a way forward and maybe how challenging some of the metaphors we are living by, using Lakoff's uh, words, uh, and, and help us to find new metaphors. And, and I don't know if there is a way that, that that understanding could help us, but I wondered if you had a thought about it. It's, it's a, a wonderful ideal. Um, yeah, it, it's true that he believes, um, as you say, metaphor is hardwired, both, both in the way that analogy is, is at the root of language, but he, he talks about... Um, Ideas of the body and consciousness, um, meaning he's got a, a sense of the embodied self, and he sees that reflected in metaphors. So, for example, he would see us using spatial words as kind of um, invisible metaphors all the time because we, ha- we are so strongly embodied, but we don't see them. So, for example, if I'm depressed, I'll say I'm down, or if I'm ecstatic, I'll say I'm up. Um, ideas about time are given spatially, so the future, you know, I'm looking forward to it, let's look back on our holiday. And that notion that we're using the spatial language as metaphor all the time without knowing it, uh, you know, I, when I first read him, I found that kind of rather mind-blowing. And the fact that it's invisible to us. Um, and you were right, if, if, if I don't know how, in a kind of schematic way, we can work together and find those new languages new metaphors, but I think there's probably certainly a feeling that change is necessary, if not imminent, and maybe it is the job of the writers and the poets to kind of start that. I don't know. And perhaps within that, just, you know, actually recognising the lenses through which we do um, look at the world, or indeed create it, and some of the sessions I think with Tim and Charles after lunch, and how much those narratives are really written into making the world um, rather than just receiving it. I've got two questions. I think we've got Simon there on the right. and um, Got any more microphones? There, for instance, all the students have vanished. Oh, sorry, we will come up to the top, probably. Just down the front there. And then we'll come up to the top and do everyone at the top. Thank you. Simon Chapman from the National Council for Palliative Care and the Dying Matters Coalition. And thank you both. This has been a, uh, uh, it's been a really fascinating uh, discussion. Um, just reflecting something we've been kicking about on Twitter whilst all of this has been going on, I'd just like to make the case that um, actually empathy and imagination should really be seen as absolutely core clinical values. Um, it, without those, people become dehumanised um, in both ways. So um, those providing the care become dehumanised. They lose the sight of the humanity of the people they're caring for um, and vice versa. And language is so important. One's one of my constant... Um, it's a pet campaigns is to get people to start talking about patients and to start talking about people so you see the whole personhood. Um, but particularly you know, in the context in which we live, where um, at the age of times where we're moving away from, like, from a century that's focused on cure and on treatment towards a century that's going to be focusing much more on care, uh, we need to start building this back in. And I wonder what your thoughts were about, you know, for example, you know, using poetry to train empathy, I think is a great idea, but about you know, uh, empathy being something you recruit for um, that's in, built into people's appraisals. Well, the jury's out on whether empathy's real. I think we're going to come on to that after the uh, after lunch. <laughs> but yes, 
I, I, yes, I can't, I can't say no to that. I think that's all very, very interesting. I'm, I'm concerned, though, not to you know, throw reason out of the door or, or even to keep up this kind of uh, dichotomy between the two. Because I keep thinking that, you know, for a scientist, imagination is necessary to make the hypothesis. You've got to make that kind of leap, that, that kind of vision of what it is that you want to investigate. Then you apply your scientific method. But the first step has to be an imaginative one, sometimes a hugely imaginative one. Rupert Ray, would you agree? Is there? A, I mean, we were asking about where premises came from. Is that fair? I'm sure I'm totally right. I mean, basically, our hypotheses don't descend from heaven. They come from us. We have to generate them in order to test them. And we always go beyond our experience, beyond our knowledge, in advancing our knowledge. So what Joe said is absolutely right. It's an act of great imagination. But as, as uh, the great French uh, uh, physiologist So our hypotheses don't arrive from heaven. There's a uh, statement of belief. Another one. Two in a day. Are we just going to come up to the um, top now? Um, lady on the right. Um, thank you. My name's Sarah Collins. I'm a, I teach communication at Manchester Medical School. Um, I'm struck by um, a number of things, and I have a particular question. I'll be brief. Um, in terms of um, literature and its influence and poetry in, in, and who reads it, in Manchester we have 400 students in a year and this year the 400 second year students read MJ Highland's piece about MS and all discussed it and I've then sent their comments back to Maria. So, and, and your poem of mutability is one that I use with all the first years. And, and it's one among a number of poems and this is my question um, I use the poems with the students to allow them a different point of entry into thinking about the consultation. And this morning we haven't particularly talked about the consultation, but it seems a lot of the points that have been made, for example about the interaction, the dynamic between reason and imagination, are played out within a consultation. Um, and poetry is a kind of analogy to a consultation. It has assonances, alliteration, white space, and so on. So I'm interested to know your thoughts about how a poetry relates to consultation. After you. <laughs> well, we'll have, actually, I don't know if this is a reasonable answer, but at 3.30 to 4.50, we'll have an entire session on, yeah. on consultation and, I guess, uh, on clinical judgment, uh, to use Jane's phrase, which is arguably more than a sort of technical appraisal of the patient. And I guess a lot of those themes will hopefully come out. If I can defer them, is that all right? Oh, no, I'm not allowed to defer them. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't really think it's about clinical judgment. That wasn't my question. Mm -hmm. It was about the imagination, and it's about the links between imagination and reason, and how imagination revisits, forces one to revisit reason and reconsider it. And the reason that one might have as a doctor is not the reason that one may have as a patient. Yeah. So I would really like to know what Joe thinks about it. As a sorry, no, go on. <laughs> You better have a really good answer for this. <laughs> I, it, it's a really interesting question because I was talking earlier about um, the, the, for the patient the role of the imagination in, in, in trying to understand the darkness of, of the body and actually how it could 
because there are no answers and, and very little knowledge, how it runs riot. So in the context of a consultation, I, I would say my experience is massive self-censorship because actually my, my imagination is going everywhere and thinking everything all at once in a kind of not helpful way. But then it's very difficult to pick out what is useful to say, and I think probably that's a common experience for patients. We're out of time. It's time for lunch. <laughs> We'll see you in an hour. Thank you very much, Joe <laughs> Shepard.